0: looking to sound like you know what's going on in the world pop culture social strategy comedy and other funny stuff well join the club and settle in for the jeff dwoskin show it's not the podcast we deserve but the podcast we all need with your host jeff dwoskin all right bruce thank you so much for that amazing introduction you get the show going each and every week and this week is no exception welcome everybody to episode 59 of Live from Detroit, The Jeff DeWoskin Show. As always, I am your host, Jeff DeWoskin. Excited to have you here. Special episode, we're celebrating the movie Jaws. That's right, Jaws. didn't Hit the theaters June 20th, 1975. Just celebrated its 46th anniversary. So who do we have on the show? we have Joe Alves. That's right, Joe Alves, art director, production designer, the guy who designed the shark, the one that scared the bejeebies out of all of us, is here. We're going to talk about the book, Joe Alves, Designing Jaws, and Joe is going to take us through basically an oral history of how the movie Jaws came to be, from just an idea, his sketches, production to everything that we know and love today we cover a lot of amazing topics and if you're a fan of jaws or just movie trivia in general you're gonna be blown away joe also was the art director production designer on close encounters of the third kind he's worked with alfred hitchcock walt disney rod serling He's made such an impact in the world of movies. He was the recipient of the Art Director's Lifetime Achievement Award. It's amazing to have him here. And that's coming up in just a few minutes. You know how much I love Jaws, and I know how much you love Jaws. Just a reminder, after listening to Joe, you can dive into episode 26, where I talked to Carl Gottlieb, author of The Jaws Log. He wrote the script for the movie Jaws. We talked a lot about the movie during the interview, including the Indianapolis speech and the origin of You're Gonna Need a Bigger Boat. So definitely check that out. That's episode 26 with the amazing Carl Gottlieb. While you're in the mood for checking things out, don't forget to check out my YouTube channel. Link, of course, is in the show notes. Just search The Jeff DeWaskin Show on YouTube, subscribe, watch my live show I do every Wednesday at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time called Crossing the Streams. Me and a bunch of my friends, we watch a ton of shows and we tell you what you should be streaming, sometimes what you shouldn't be streaming. Last week, we talked about Mayor of Eastwood, Abducted in Plain Sight, and a bunch of other shows. So check out that. That was episode 28. 28 hours of television and movie streaming suggestions await you. Also, check out jeffisfunny.com. That's the podcast website where you can link to any of your favorite podcast apps and subscribe, follow, like the podcast so you get notified every time a new episode comes out. It's completely free to subscribe or follow or like the podcast. Also, while you're at jeffisfunny.com, sign up for our mailing list. We send out emails weekly to remind you of all the goodness that awaits you at Live from Detroit, The Jeff DeWoskin Show. Thank you all for your constant support. It means the world to me. And don't forget to tell all your friends. Word of mouth is the greatest marketing technique in the history of the world. Next time you're at the supermarket, just peer into someone's Cart and go, oh, I see you love frozen hot dogs. I bet you'd also love live from Detroit, the Jeff Tawaskin show. As they look at you funny, just stare at them confidently and slowly walk away. Thank you very much. I appreciate all of you so much. And now it's time for the social media tip. All right. This is the part of the show where I share a little bit of my social media knowledge with you to make your social media lives that much better. You're welcome. All right, today, Twitter lists. That's right. Hop on Twitter, make a list. Jeff, what's a Twitter list? I didn't even know you could make lists on Twitter. I know. They kind of bury it under one of those little dot, dot, dot things. So anyway, find where you can create a Twitter list, set up a Twitter list. Here's why it's great. You can follow a bunch of people or sites, and then when you click on that list, your feed, your Twitter feed, is just posts or retweets from those accounts. How cool is that? It's like creating your own version of Twitter. I know, amazing. But here's the best part. You don't have to follow the folks that you put on a list. You can put anyone on a list. Oh, here's my favorite actors. Oh, here's my favorite news sites. Everyone can be its own list. You can set it private if you don't want Scott Bayo to know that you have him on a list. Stuff like that. It's all super easy to do. Go set up a list. Create your own variants of the Twitter timeline. Make Twitter your own, and you'll enjoy it a ton. And that's the social media tip. I do want to thank everyone for for supporting the sponsors week after week. It means the world to me. When you support the sponsors, you're supporting live from Detroit, the Jeff DeWaskin Show. It's how we keep the lights on. This week's sponsor, Jaws-inspired fish sticks and patties by Gordon Foods. That's right. Are you tired of being bitten by sharks? Well, now it's your turn to do the biting. Jaws-inspired fish sticks and patties come in tons of great shapes, such as the orca, a shark fin, a partially eaten surfboard, and everyone's favorite, a person with just one leg. If you're hungry... It's time to reach for Jaws, fish sticks, and patties. They're great, white-flavored, and available in your freezer section. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm hungry. Guess it's time to get out there and get some Jaws, fish sticks, and patties. All right, well, while we're all in the mood for Jaws, and we got the interview with Joe Alves coming right up, figured I'd do a little Jaws trivia for all of you, since we're all in the Jaws mood. We all know Robert Shaw was an amazing quint, but did you know Lee Marvin was considered for the role? I didn't know that either. I did not know that. Peter Benchley, the author of the book Jaws, makes a cameo in the movie as a reporter on the beach. Don't think I knew that. Did not realize that. Steven Spielberg's dog, Elmer, starred as Chief Brody's pet dog in Jaws, and also went on to star in Close Encounters of the Third Kind and Steven Spielberg's movie, 1941. That's some interesting trivia. So I hope you're now in the Jaws frame of mind, and you're ready for my conversation with Joe Elves. Joe dives into his career, what led him to the movie Jaws. The book, Joe Elves, Designing Jaws, is referenced a few times. It's an amazing book. I own a copy. Ladies and gentlemen, my conversation with Joe Elves. All right, ladies and gentlemen. I'm excited to welcome my next guest to the show, production designer and director, Joe Alves. Joe, welcome to the show. Well, nice being here. Great to have you here. For those listening, Joe is most well-known for, one of his big things is, if you've ever had like the fear of going in the water and thinking there's a shark about to attack you anytime you're in a pool and you hear that noise, mm-hmm. Joe designed the shark. Mm-hmm. Joe is the guy. That is put that visual in, in our head for all eternity. So thank you for that, Joe. Thought a good place to start was what is a production designer?
1: Well, production designer is the same thing as an art director. The credit production designer started many years ago, and it was pretty much just for big films. There would be uh, well William Cameron Menzies started it back on uh, Gone with the Wind, but very few people got production design credit until the seventies. It was an art director because the way the system worked. You know, we have to go back to the studio system with there was six or seven-year-old Paramount, Warner Brothers, and they all had department heads. So if you worked in the art department or a camera or whatever, you were a staff guy. There was very few independent things. So you were an art director and the head of, of the art department would give you a script and that's how you went. Then in the, a few prestigious films, they gave the title to uh, as production designer and then they had an art director work under the production designer or assistant. And that went on. And then now it's pretty much just production designer. But before, I'll just go quickly. If you start in the art department, you either start as an illustrator or a set designer. In other words, you do the technical architectural drawings, and then you, you could spend your career working on the board. If you're fortunate enough, you become an assistant art director. And that's when I got a chance to work with Hitchcock and then become art director and then Proceed anyway. That was a long story to answer your question.
0: No, it's fabulous. Let's pivot. What was it like to work with Alfred Hitchcock? That's incredible.
1: Interesting guy. Let me just say that was 1965. Junior system was quite different. Anybody that wasn't working, like on the drawing boards or something, you wore a jacket and and a tie, and the executives wore black suits. We called them the suits. And Hitchcock always wore a black suit and black tie. So It was was weird to be, because directors now direct in T-shirts or whatever. But there was a certain formality there. We would meet every morning, and Frank O'Riegel was the art director, I was the assistant. And there was a production designer, Hein Heckroff, who we brought in just to do the ballet sequence, and he was from Germany. Very, very nice guy. But Frank and I did design the sets. And I'll tell you, what a production designer does, he's responsible for everything visual. In other words, uh, he gets a script, he breaks it down. I'll get back to Hitchcock. He breaks it down. So you're responsible for finding locations. Now they have location scouts. You know, I'll go into that, how you drive forever looking for locations. And you do whatever illustrations and storyboards. In other words, if it's a small movie like Jaws... Was a small movie, I did the storyboards and the drawings. On a bigger picture, you have an illustrator and set designers that draw that. So you're responsible for everything that's visual. You consult with the costume people so you get the colors correct. The room's gonna be blue, so maybe you want a contrasting colors of yellow or something for the wardrobe. So that's your responsibility is to get whatever is needed visually. So now Hitchcock was a very visual guy. He used to be an art director when he was in England. We would meet for coffee in the morning with the production manager, the art director, myself, and he would tell very unfunny jokes <laughs> and and we were supposed to know when to laugh i remember he was saying uh, it was so cold in the fjord that mr newman had to eat his asparagus with gloves hitchcock was who uh, knew how to dine anyway that was supposed to be funny <laughs> but i do have a, a hitchcock story peggy was his assistant And Peggy called me and said, Mr. Iscock wants to see you. The more advanced people, the director of photography or producers would call him Hitch. But I... I had to call him Mr. Hitchcock. Mr. Hitchcock wants to see you. I said, well, what about Frank? What about... No, no, he wants to see you. So, okay. I go to his office and he gets out a pencil and he starts telling me drawing. And he, he drew like... But he never lifted the pencil off. It was like a worm crawling around the page. And He said, Mr. Hitchcock runs down here. He runs down the stairs. And then Mr. Whitlock, who's a mad artist, would do a backing of that. And then he comes over to the registration desk and he leaves. And I said... Okay, so he says, you know, you build the stairway and you build registration desk. And I said, well, what about the reverse shots? What about, you know, over here? No, 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 you just build. And so that's Hitchcock. We would build half sets for him. What was unique about that It's really the wise way to make movies. He believed in a lot of storyboards, so everybody knew what they were going to shoot. He would come in and check the storyboards. Where so many directors I have worked with in the past build it all for me, then I'll decide what I'm going to shoot, which is a total waste of money. If you plan it first, then you walk in. The other director that could do this pretty well, and I did it because of a budget, was John Carpenter on Escape from New York. And I would build half sets because that's what he wanted. So anyway, but Hitchcock was, um, he liked the planning of a movie, I think. That's where his big effort was. It would spend a lot of time and be in the art department, look at the storyboards and wouldn't say much. You'd just nod, yeah. And that was a unique thing, I think, about Hitchcock. He knew what he wanted before he got on the set. So that
0: when he got on the set, it was like boring to him. Right, because he, he knew everything he was going to do A to Z. Right. It, was just, it was just plug and play. It must have been amazing to work with such a talent that could, and you must have learned so much from, I mean, from Alfred Hitchcock, my goodness, to be able to play that out in your head like that. It was
1: such a different time you know the studio system and who you're working with Stanley Kramer I did a little thing for it's a a mad mad world you know I did a lot of drawings for them whatever came up probably my biggest break was getting night gallery night gallery I was a young art director then and we would do it was such a unique show it wasn't like a regular tv show where you have standing sets and you just I would do maybe 20 sets a week because it would be two or three different episodes. That was a real development for my career. Rod Serling was an incredible writer, you
0: know. You know, I'm embarrassed. I, I'm the biggest fan of The Twilight Zone. My entire bookshelf, one half of one thing is all Twilight Zone. And I love Rod Serling. And I feel that sometimes I even think that the whole concept of how he would write and twist at the end is Is kind of how I learned that sense of even being a comedian. I know they weren't comedies, but like just the whole idea of being able to shift a a narrative at the end of something. I always think back like that's where I think I first learned that whole concept. I never saw Night Gallery. It was never on TV. I'm embarrassed because I know it's a bit you did three seasons of it. But I'm a huge fan of Fraud Serling.
1: Yeah. And there was some really, really good shows and we had some really good actors. I remember, uh, but I built a big set. It was off the lot. It was in a, and uh, it was Borneo. Janosh work was the director who I worked with, and he directed Jaws 2. I got him the job on job two because he fired the first director. But I'm sitting there with, with Rod and, you know, and we're all about the same size, five, five, six, not too tall. I turned to him and I said, Rod, I, I don't know how you do it. You write all these great things, you know, and he turned to me and I'll never forget this. He says, I write them, but you make them happen. And I said, what? He says, yeah, you make them happen. I write the script, but obviously you make the, the sense and, you know, all that stuff. So th- that was one of the biggest
0: compliments I think
1: I've ever gotten.
0: That's amazing.
1: Yeah. So, you know, you don't forget things like that. He died too young. I think he was like 50 or something.
0: Way too young. I grew up a huge fan of Rod Serling because The Twilight Zone was always on. Yeah. My love for Rod Serling was always connected to that. I've always known about it. I just, I, I'm going to have to hunt it down. I'm going to have to work a little harder. Now they know the art director. Okay. So Alfred Hitchcock and Rod Serling, these are just the first of two huge, huge names that you'll work with. And then you also, you work with Walt Disney. Walt used to, you called him Walt. I was so fortunate to get a job at
1: Disney's. I was 19. I went to college in San Jose State in Northern California. I remember thinking, it was interesting. I always wanted to design movies. I didn't quite know what it was. American in Paris. I saw that when I was 14. Gene Kelly, Leslie Caron. I remember going to the theater, a little theater downtown. It was an early evening, Saturday evening, and we were coming back, and Shirley and I, were sort of dancing to the music. So I, I got back, and then I found out the movie wasn't made in Paris at all. It was all made in the United States. Cedric Gibbons was the head of the art department and it was all MGM. And I thought, oh my God, what a great job that would be. I could always draw. Started learning drafting in high school. So I majored in architecture and minored in drama. And I was in a play. A friend of mine directed the play. In any case... I kept driving to San Jose and there was a sign to LA and I said, someday I'm going to turn left and go to, anyway, I ended up coming down to LA and going to Chouinard's Art Institute because they taught production design. So I was there a year or so that, that summer I needed a, a job. I wanted to stay in LA, but I had run into one of the fraternity guys he said I was looking for a job in LA and he says, oh, well, his uh, wife's father works at Disney. Why don't you give him a call? So I said, oh, maybe I'll get a job sweeping up or, you know, whatever. I called him because I was only 19. I just turned 19. Turned out Camille's father did the hiring for the artist. I mean, what luck was that, huh? He said, well, bring your portfolio in. And I said, I, I don't think I'm ready yet. He said, "Oh, bring it in." So I brought in my portfolio, stuff I had from art school. He said, "Well, you're too late for the training program, which teaches you how to draw Mickey Mouse and stuff. But I can put you right now into special effects." The next day, I come in and he they put me in a room with this woman, Marion, and there was this light board. I said, "What do I do?" She said, "Put the paper down. Then you're in between. You draw in between these drawings." And we did things like water and fire and so I'm thinking, uh, wow, this is great. So she showed me how to do it. And she worked for Dwight Carlisle. So she was a, a breakdown artist. So she worked, and, and White worked for Josh Metter. And he was like the king of effects, guys. He did the the fire scene in Bambi, he did the Nine in Bald Mountain, all that stuff. He was working on a picture for MGM, and it was a Forbidden Planet. And they were doing the id. I don't know if you ever saw that movie or the id it was a creature that came out. And after a couple of weeks, uh, she had to leave. And so she said, well, you just work directly with Dwight. So now I'm breaking down after a couple of weeks for Dwight, who was the assistant. And after another month or so, Dwight Carlo had to go to the hospital. So now I'm assisting Josh Better, drawing the id. Incredible. So after like, two or three months, I'm assistant animator. That was the start. And I was there for a couple of years, but I was drawing something for Sleeping Beauty. I'm slipping the pages. I'm drawing one of the uh, fairies has got a cookie. So I have a cookie and this guy reaches over my shoulder and says, no, no, the cookie should look like this. And I look. I said, "Oh, okay, Walt. Thank you." I mean, it was I had <laughs> Walt Disney correcting one of my drawings. I'll never forget that because that's a pretty big thing. Anyway, that that was my Disney experience, and it was fun. But eventually, I really wanted to get into live action and do set designs. I left, and I and I went to work at a little theater, the Hollywood Playhouse, and started designing sets for the theater. Eventually, got a, a portfolio became a junior set designer. What an amazing story. It was interesting as a junior set designer, you're the last to be hired and the first to be fired until you become a senior. And then so I worked at MGM on, on, uh, oh, I got Mutiny on the Bounty and I worked at Warner Brothers. And finally at Universal, I got a home there and I became a senior set designer. And I just stayed there and then I became assistant art director and art director. But it was such a a, a different situation now because I talk to young people that just become production designers. Some of them can't even draw. They just find things online. You know, they Google spaceships, Google spaceships. Oh, that looks like a good spaceship. Where before we would research, I mean, like for example, on JAWS, if you look at the book, you'll see early
0: illustrations
1: They were done in charcoal with the shark coming at the guy sitting in the boat and stuff like that.
0: The book Joe is talking about is Joe Alves Designing Jaws, which is an amazing book. Speaking of those early Jaws drawings, how did these come to be? And how how did you originally get involved with Jaws?
1: Well, what happened was I was doing uh, a television movie. and I had a lot of time because it was mostly uh, locations. David Brown was Zanuck and Brown with producers on Sugar Man Express. Stephen's first movie, and I got to know them pretty well. And David Brown was editor of Cosmopolitan, and his wife, Helen Gurley Brown, was then editor of Cosmopolitan magazine. He was into the literary aspects of the Zeneca Brown team. So he says his wife showed him the galley sheets of a book called Jaws, his new writer, young writer, Peter Benchley. He says, "I, My wife thinks it might make a pretty good movie. And so we've got to sell this shark movie to the studio because so if I send you the galleys, put you just do some drawings that illustrate the shark activity. I wasn't supposed to do that, really. They they didn't have a, a charge number, so they couldn't really pay me, but I was being paid doing this television movie. And I mentioned it to the uh, head of the department and because it was Zanuck and Brown and they had won the Academy Award for the sting and they were very prestigious. He said, yeah, just fill it in, do it whenever you can. So I did it, I did about 25, 30 of those drawings. That led to a big meeting. And Marshall Green, who was the head of production, so we had a meeting with all the department heads—camera, editing, special effects. Stephen hadn't been brought into the movie yet. They had some other director in mind, but he kept calling the the shark uh, a whale, and they didn't like him. But I, I got to know Stephen pretty well on Sugarland, so I used to go over to this cabana where he was uh, had an office, and I kept talking to him about the shark and doing showing the pictures. He says, "Yeah, well, if." He said, we're going to do a pirate movie or something. But if we ever did it, we should do it in a real ocean, like a 25-foot shark. And I did my little spiel. So when we had this meeting, they brought Stephen. Stephen had been brought in. Danica Brown was there. Stephen was there. I was talking to Marshall Green, who liked the water because he lived on a boat. He had a boat. So he he related to this Jaws thing. And I'm telling you, I'm I'm getting that to how I got involved in all this and part of research. When I finished, he turned to the effects department and said, can you, can you make this shark? The biggest white shark recorded was like 20 feet. Stephen and I thought it should be bigger. But anyway, I'll get to that. And the effects department said, no, we can't, we can't make that. So first of all, it would take a year, year and a half, and no one's ever done it in the real ocean. Besides, we have bigger movies like the Hindenburg. Marshall got upset and said Jaws could be a bigger movie than the Hindenburg. And everybody laughed. Of course, Hindenburg, with George C. Scott was going to be the biggest movie. Jaws is just a little shark movie. And they always thought of it as a little shark movie, $4 million most shark movie. So basically, the meeting broke up. I was collecting my drawings and I was the last to leave. And Marshall called me back and he said, Can you get the shark made? And being ambitious and young, I said, well, I certainly will try. He says, okay, well, take it off the lot. Don't do anything on the lot. That was, everything was always done in the lot. If It was Paramount, or Warner Brothers, whatever. You had special effects, or special stuff. You didn't farm it out. But he wanted this, just go find it. So basically, then I had to start doing research on sharks you don't just Google, you You start getting books and going to oceanographical places. And I started looking for people to build it. And I went to Disney and they said they would build it. It would take probably a year, year and a half to build it because it's never been done before, but they wouldn't take it to the ocean. And I said, well, that's not going to work because Stephen and I were dead set on that. After Joe Lombardi, who, who did the Godfathers series, he said, you "No, know, he was busy, but he says besides, so it's going to take a good year, year and a half to make something like that and to test it." So then, somebody in my research said, "Have you talked to Bob Eddy? He used to be a FX guy at Disney. I Did the Twenty Thousand uh, Leagues Under the Sea and build the giant squid and all that." So I met Bob. He was sort of somewhat retired, very about probably sixty-five, but very ambitious. Very, you know, he could do it. He said, "Give me a day or so." So if you look in the book, there's this wire illustration I did. You pull a layer and the mouth opens and it closes, it, you know, goes. So that was the concept of building the shark. Now, getting back to the research, that's fine, but I have to find out about sharks. So in the book, there's a drawing with all these measurements. And there's also a sculpture that I did four feet. I ended up with Leonard Campagno, who's an ichthyologist out of the Steinhardt, San Francisco. And I started researching white sharks to great detail of it. What Leonard said was sharks, the bigger they get, the fatter they get. So the most perfect shaped white shark would be about 12 feet. We doubled that. I started uh, making the model, a real white shark, 12 feet, and I'm, all the measurements. So and it's like exactly right on. And then Leonard came down and worked with me to get the details. Perfectly, and then we went from there
0: to the 25-foot shark. So you sketched it out. You had you had the dimensions of a real shark, matched it up, built it out.
1: So when everybody says you know it wasn't, it was right on. It was right on, and I got experts to work with me. Ron and Valerie Taylor were very well-known documentary people. They did Blue Water, White Death, and they were in Australia. And I remember. Talking to them about the movement of the shark and says, You don't want to wag the tail. They don't do that. They just sort of boom and then they attack. That's how, you know, that started. In the research, it was interesting. When you do
0: uh, a movie, whether it's sharks or it's spaceships. Okay. So everyone always says, Oh, Joe designed the shark. But you didn't just, you didn't just design the shark. It's, uh, you're, it's almost sounding like you're, you almost made <laughs> it wasn't for Joe. This movie wouldn't have even been made. I mean, you seem to like sell it visually because you didn't, you the sketches that you drew, you drew the original swimming death in the beginning, Andy Kidner dying, Ben Gardner dying, Hooper dying, spoiler, he dies in the book, and Quint's death. Right, so you you outlined all of these things. Yeah, me. I did
1: all the storyboards too at the very
0: end of the right. Well I'm just saying, but those were the things you kind of did in the beginning to help sell it to Stephen and all, and the studios. Very unusual because
1: to have that kind of position, because I put together the crew after I got Bob Maddy. We got Roy Arbogast, who was incredible with skins and and new plastics. The Wood Brothers to do the welding. Yeah, I put together the team. And we set up a facility in Sunderland, which is near the studio, but away from the studio. And we started the shark. That would probably be uh, October, November, because the meeting was in October. So by the time I got everything together, it was probably late November, we got the team and started doing the first shark. We were going to do three sharks, left to right, right to left, because we were towing it and we wanted the Backside that you don't see accessible to get into the mechanics. And then one on a a big crane arm on a platform. So I got that started. And so in December, then I had to go look for a location. So I met with Peter Benchley in New York and I said, You know, where did you write this? He said, No place specific, but he lived in uh, Nantucket. I had a map of the East Coast and I was looking at all these little towns, villages. I also needed a bay that you could see the ocean, clear of the ocean. And I needed 25 feet because there was that platform that came out with the shark on a crane. And we needed 25 feet. And then I needed a very low tide so that if the tide was too high or too low, you would see this, you know, the shark could come up. And and the tide in the west coast was like 12 feet or something. So I started uh, scouting uh, all the east coast. He mentioned uh, to go. See his parents in Nantucket, and I had mentioned to him, "Well, what's this island over here, Martha's Vineyard?" He says, "I don't think there's anything there. He'd never been there because he lived on Nantucket. You don't go to other islands." So here I am, starting to build the shark, and and I'm off scouting by myself. Stephen's working on the script, uh, so that's how small this movie was. I mean, I was it was me and Stephen, my crew of six guys. Oh, Actually, with Bob, I called them Magnificent Seven because they were building that. And I went off scouting by myself in the winter looking for a summer location. You know, today they have production designers like on the new Star Wars film. They have probably 10 art directors and a production designer and assistants. This was like a really small movie. And they didn't really want to make it.
0: Well, the book hadn't come out yet, right? They were just, they had no idea if the book was going to be a success or not. They just knew it was a good, it was a potentially good story. You're all working in in that void.
1: Exactly. And I'll I'll get that book thing because here's what happened. So I was going to Nantucket to see his parents and take a look at the island. And the weather was so bad, the boat had to turn around. And then I noticed, oh, there's a boat to Martha's Vineyard. Maybe I'll go look at that. So I went to look at Martha's Vineyard. And I was just blown away. Edgartown was perfect for the beautiful picket fences. And what a beautiful place for a shark to come and destroy the summer. And then Manempsha was a really good sub, uh, you know, fishing village. And then right between there was a, a bay, which was 25 feet with a two-foot tide. And I thought, wow, we could do the whole thing here. So that was my plan. Zanuck was not happy with it because Martha's Vineyard, there was a the Chappaquiddick thing with uh, Ted Kennedy. Sure, sure. Where we died and all that. He says, I don't think they're going to be happy. There are a lot of rich people there. I could be happy you shooting a movie there. Well, we convinced him that it was really good. And Stephen eventually started all the very selective putting them in the movie and all the people that weren't rich people that needed jobs, because I took a painter and a carpenter and I hired local boat builders and stuff. Going back to the book. So that was uh, November, December. The guys are building the shark. February, the book comes out. The studio says, we're going to start shooting this in two months. I said, well, what about my year to build the shark? Oh, no, no, we're going to start shooting. I said, but the shark won't be ready. They didn't give a damn. You know, it was like, this book is successful and we have to take advantage of that. And so your dumb shark's going to have to be ready. There lies the problem. So the guys really had to scramble, and basically we moved everything to the east coast. They weren't finished with the sharks. We would try to test it; things wouldn't work. The salt water kept eating into the electricity, you know, electrical things. And basically, I would uh, go to Stephen, and and we we realized that we had to shoot everything we could possibly shoot without the shark. Starting so early, we're doing in May. We're in Martha's Vineyard doing water sequences and people are freezing all the on the beach i mean it was way before the summer came so that created a lot of problems and we used the barrels we didn't use the barrels because the shark didn't work we used the barrels because it was like a hitchcock thing to represent the shark more of an intriguing thing and the reason people said a lot of critics say oh we didn't use the shark enough because it didn't work if you look at my storyboards Everything there, every shot that had a shark in it, we got. So Stephen got what he wanted. So I would go to him and I'd say, well, I think the left to right shark is working. Let's see if that works. And so that's the way we went. We would test it. If it worked, we would shoot it. It went on like that. It was uh, quite an ordeal. Getting back to my position was very unusual for a production designer to actually be sort of leading the effects team. Basically, that's what happened because he put me in charge of it. That was a very unusual film for a production designer. And in fact, it was a low budget. The storyboards, they would normally, I did like 200 storyboards, they would have an illustrator, but they didn't want to afford to pay an illustrator and pay room and board. No, no joke could do it. So is the book, I think Dennis did an incredible job on the book because it illustrates Not just my designing of it, but how difficult it was, the small team that we had, to put together this shark thing. The studio almost canceled it twice, if not four times. Fortunately, uh, Stephen had, I don't know if this had any effect, but uh, Lorraine Gary was in the movie, and she was married to president of Universal. So I don't think he necessarily wanted to cancel it, said Scheinberg. Anyway, that's how Jaws started.
0: It sounds like from me is I mean this is the fan at home and all the stories about the shark not working. It sounds like it's more like I think the perception that would have gone through my head is everything they thought was working and then they got there and it wasn't working. But that wasn't even the case. You were lucky. See, you hadn't even finished it yet. You were being rushed by the studio. And so, by the grace of God, you probably actually got it to work as, as well as you did under the time frame that you did. I mean, that's it's more incredible when you hear it from your point of view. <laughs> well, if it was a
1: studio thing, they would be going through a process, like it has to be designed and built and then it goes through effects and all that. With us, we were removed from the studio. They didn't have any clue about complications. And they didn't want to hear about it. They just want to say, we got to get this movie done. And they had a, a young director. I must say this, though. One of the very most difficult things in our schedule was when we started shooting The Shark, it was probably July. So it was still big in the summer season. So that bay that I scouted in December was just empty. And Stephen wanted them totally isolated. So he didn't want to see... Any boats up there. Well, Martha's Vineyard is a great place from Hyannisport, all these big yachts. The sea was full of boats. And Stephen was very determined. No, I don't want to see any boats. We can't do any shots of so we had to have little boats running on tell people, could you sail over here? And some people would cooperate, other people would just, no, I'm gonna do what I want. That really held up the schedule a lot because we had to wait not only for the shark, we had to wait for master shot with no boats. If you remember in the movie, Quint breaks the radio, so they have no communication. So he wanted the three guys out there isolated. That was very, very difficult. And there were times the studio said, we, we got to just shut this thing down. And, but we persisted. And then we got back home. And we had some pickup shots and we were not heroes. The boat that I built, Quint's boat, they sold it. The shark, they threw it out into the back lot and, and let it rot. And then the movie came out. And oh my God, you know, then they needed something for the tours. So then they had to buy the boat back. And then they took the mold and they made a fiberglass shark that they hung up on the tours so people could take pictures in front of it. So they did that for a number of years. After many, many years, they built a shark ride. Somebody got rid of that plastic shark, fiberglass shark. Ended up in... um, a big car lot it was a used, not a used car lot, but a car parts where it would be just acres of cars. You pay to go in and, and you find a piece that you need. And he had that up on some pole. Corey Turner was a guy from NPR. He came out it about nine years ago. He says, I want to, you know, could you meet me at this place and we'll talk about the junkyard shark and see if it was really made off of the original mold? And so I called Roy Ivergast, who made the mold. and We went there. Oh, yeah, this was definitely made from the original. So it was the only real thing left from the original shark was the mold. A couple of years ago, people from the Motion Picture Museum contacted me about this shark. They had gotten it from the junkyard shark. And they had it in a warehouse. They said it needs to be redone. I said, I know a guy that could do it. Greg Nicotero, who does The Walking Dead, and we've been friends for years, and he's a big Jaws fan. Interesting thing, Jeff, a lot of directors that are like in their 50s were big Jaws fans, because in the 70s was a hell of a time with Jaws and Close Encounters and Star Wars and stuff. They were very influenced by Jaws. And now they're directors and stuff. But anyway, I got to know him years ago. I gave him copies of my drawings and stuff. I said, well, we should have Greg do it. So Greg refinished it. Well, today he called me. He said they had put the shark up in the museum. But he was saying he saw it and it looks great. So it's sort of funny, Jeff, because Jaws never dies. You know, it just goes on. And the shark is now finally beautiful and it's hung up. And he says, the only thing is... What blows people's mind, they don't realize how big it is until you get close to it. I mean, the tail is like six feet, huge. When you see how big it is, the fact that we were moving it around and it was crashing on boats. So the Jaws thing lives. The studio, as I say, was not crazy about the movie until we had a screening in Texas. It went OK. Stephen called me, said, Joe, we got four screams. I think we'll get five. I need a couple shots. I mean, this is we're doing for nothing. He said, I need the hull of the boat and I need two shots. The shark hitting the boat, show me the way to go home, boom, boom. And then the water is spurting that the boat's going to sink. And then also the head, when Dreyfus drops the thing, the head comes and there's a hole and the head appears. And All right. So I built that in my garage. And we shot the head in Werner Field's pool. Werner won the Academy Award for editing. The big Universal movie, we're doing it in my backyard. We're doing it in Werner's pool, pickup shots. And then when there was uh, the film, he I don't know where he got the camera. And he got an underwater camera and stole the head from the makeup department. So then the dailies of Shark Dailies and Santa Cruz, it can't be Shark Dailies. We finished that movie. Well, we didn't. Steven got it all together he put those two shots into the film and when the people saw the head coming they just flipped out they screamed and so we were at lakewood screening and all the executives were there lou wasserman and everybody sitting behind us jeff my fear was they were going to laugh because when the shark worked it made all sorts of noises (laughs) this is before john williams music and then after see once they cut Everybody laughed, you know, because a silly shark makes it work. I was a little concerned that the audience may laugh at the shark because everybody else did when we were shooting it. Well, cutting it, Verna did an incredible job. And John Williams' music. Da-da-da-da. And Stephen was complaining to John, I think, that you're getting paid an awful lot of money to do two notes, you know. Da-da-da-da. They saw the movie and they thought, oh my gosh, this could be a big success. Now, normally they release... The big movies in the later part of the year for the Academy nominations and stuff, there wasn't really much summer releases. And they generally released at a half a dozen theaters, 10 theaters, and you wait in line until, well, they released at 450 theaters. That was the biggest ever. And it was the first big summer blockbuster. And it was all not by planning. It was just by, oh my gosh, I think we've got a success here. I guess this Little Shark movie is pretty good. And Stephen was sort of robbed from the Academy Award nomination. Uh, It was, I think he should have got nominated for that, but he didn't. Verna got the only nomination and she got the Academy Award for that. Stephen got robbed
0: for decades.
1: Yeah, it was interesting. And so, as I say, my my position was quite different. On the second one, they made me a producer. So I got involved with everything, with the the director, John Hancock, and actors and stuff like that. But then uh, John got removed they were gonna cancel that movie. And then uh I got back to the studio. I was doing a, a picture called Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Anyway, that's how I, I got involved with jaws 2. And then when they canceled that, they were gonna fired it. I, I thought, well, you know, I know a young director that I thought was on Night Gallery with rod's was uh Janoshwart. I told them the studio heads If we're going to do Jaws 2, you don't want to hire a big name director because he'll want to start from the beginning. We need to get a director that will just take off from what we have. It needs to be somebody who this is a big break for him. It worked out with, you know, and that's how Jaws 2 sort of happened.
0: So you casually mentioned Close Encounters of the Third Kind. You had you got an Oscar nomination for that.
1: Yeah, and, and it was interesting, the Oscar nomination, because it, it was uh, Star Wars that won. George Lucas came to see the set on uh, Close Encounters, which at the time was the biggest set ever built. I had to build it at an airplane hangar because it was so big and extend the hangar another 150 feet because there's no studio that big. And he was just blown away. He said, well, on Star Wars, we just built it. We had the same set. We just kept repainting it. It had, I think what happened, it had a lot of visual effects and people were blown away. They compared that. So I didn't get the Academy Award. I got the nomination, but they were all English. The guys that won, I won the British Academy Award. Nice. Against the English, because I think the the realization that the visuals were so big. I mean, it was a huge set. That sort of grew. What happened with Close Encounters, when Jaws was being edited, Stephen and I went skiing. A friend of mine, Dick Smothers, or the Smothers Brothers, he had an apartment up there in, in Mammoth. We went skiing, and, and we were we, he was going to do a bingo long in his Traveling All-Stars. It's about black baseball in the 30s. So I got a bunch of old life magazines and stuff, and, and we got snowed in. So we started talking about bingo long. And then he started reading this thing about a script he had called Watch the Sky, and I uh, talked to Heineck's book, UFO Scientific Inquiry and UFOs and Sighting the USO. And I said, wow, that sounds more interesting than the baseball movie. He says, yeah, but I don't have a, a deal. Anyway, I went back and I did a small movie called Embryo with Rock Hudson. And I was doing that and I finished that. And then Steven called me and he says, he's got a deal with Columbia Studios, which was based in at Warner Brothers at the time, to do this sort of Watch the Sky. So he said, meet with the head of the department at Columbia and see what, you know, maybe you could start. He's going to work on the script. So there again, I'm by myself in another small movie. And John Veach was the head of production. And he says, this is a small sci-fi movie, no more than three and a half million. And we're going to shoot everything on the back lot or on the soundstage here, except we need one location, some weird looking mountain. I said, okay. I flew to Mount Rushmore. And I was looking at the back of Rock Road, And then I had all these maps of all these strange looking things, chimney rock, right. ship rock, whatever. And this thing called Devil's Tower. And, and so I'm driving in Gillette, Wyoming, and I'm driving and driving. And then I see this little peak. Then it disappears and I'm driving and, it, and then it is bigger. And I'm driving. And then suddenly there's this huge thing. And I was like, oh, my God, it was just what an image, you know, for a sci-fi movie. What we did then in those days, we, you know, it took a bag full of 35 millimeter film and click, click, click. And you did pan shots. Then you get back to the studio and you tape them together. So I had Shiprock and Chimney Rock and all that. And I had Devil's Tower and I told Stephen, that's my choice. And he said, without question. So then we went there with Wilmo Zygmunt, who was a cameraman on Sugarland Express. He turned down Joss, uh, who wants to do a shark movie, but Vilmos is uh, very talented. He passed away not too long ago. So that's how it started. Now, in the script, where the spaceship's supposed to come over this military base that was just a bunch of tents out in the desert, the image of the mountain Devil's Tower was off in the distance. And I said, Steven, I would think that if we're going to be, we got information that a spaceship's going to land... We would prepare for it. We would make a space, a lot of electronic equipment and stuff to pick up everything. I said, so we need to build a set. John V said, okay, you could have stage 15 and 16, which is where they did Camelot. I says, uh, I think it looks too small. And Jaws was now becoming a bigger movie. And so he says, well, boy, you guys, you did Jaws and now you think you could just do it. I said, no, no, no. So I I built a model, always build models that would fit in stage 15, 16. And for some reason, Columbia was having some financial problems and they needed a big movie. Now they have the director of Jaws there. So they asked me, they all came and looked at my model and said, what do you think? And I said, well, I think it's too small. I think it should be four times the size, you know? And they said, oh, okay. So I made a model four times that size. And they said, oh, this is great. I mean, it's so impressive. Even just the little golf carts running around look, look small. And because the spaceship's going to come down there. So they said, well, where are you going to build it? Because yeah, it had to be, Doug Trouble came on and he had done Space Odyssey 2001 to do the effects. So we needed totally covered things because he needed certain light control and stuff. There were no studios that big. There's no sets stage that big. So I started looking for airplane hangars. And I did find some, but they also had uh, lumber yards in connection with the noise and stuff. But I found two hangars in Mobile, Alabama, side by side. But they were 300 feet square, but I, I wanted it longer, so I extended it another 150 feet. So it was 300 feet wide and a 450 feet long. And we had 14,000 square feet of, of rock, of plastic rock. And I got Roy Arbor gas who did the, the mold for Jaws to be head of the effects department there. And I put together a team. I got George Jensen, a great illustrator, to illustrate some. The illustrations really reflected the lighting. And we worked with Bill most on that. So we had a good team. Very difficult shoot. The spaceship that we built, the one that was up in the air, that was done with uh, Troubles people. Now, we didn't have CGI. Yeah, they had some forms of CGI. So we had to build all this stuff. So I built 80 feet with mirrored mylar when the door opens. And that was all mirrored with like 3,000 photo floods and smoke. And so then the little guys come out like that. So it was a big deal. It was, it was, uh, it was fun. Uh, uh, Vilmos won the Academy Award for photography. And uh, yeah, I was a
0: little disappointed
1: I didn't win. I was nominated also for special effects for Jaws.
0: Didn't get that either. So, well, it's it's an honor to be nominated, right? Isn't that what they say? Well, hey, you did. Well, you did win Art Director Lifetime Achievement Award in two thousand nineteen. Yeah, they
1: had the oh, I haven't told you about that. there's was about a thousand people there. It was a black tie event, and they were giving awards to various people. It was a very big compliment to get a Lifetime Achievement Award because they only give one a year for the last twenty years. So, twenty people have gotten it. Some very impressive people. But the Art Directors Guild asked me, well, who's going to introduce you? And I said, I don't know. So many of the people I worked with, are dead. Bill Gilmore, the production manager, people. Like... They said, how about Spielberg? I said, eh, Stevens, you know, he's directing the West Side Story. And I haven't seen him for years. I, I'd be a little apprehensive to ask him. I was on a book signing thing in Colorado with uh, Greg Nicotero, and I was talking about, I got to find something. And Greg said, oh, I'd love to introduce you. I thought, "Oh, that's cool, because he's the generation that was so influenced by the stuff that I was fortunate to work on. So I had no idea. He, he's introducing me, and behind him is a big screen, and they're projecting movies that I've worked on, Counters, Escape from the Yard, Blah blah blah. Then they finish, and here Spielberg shows up, and Steven starts talking about our, our great relationship, and um, what good time we had worked together, and how difficult Jaws was, and blah blah blah. And he went on. I said, I "Love you, Joe. You know, blah blah blah." I was blown away. I was absolutely blown away. And then I got up there and, and made my speech, and it was it was fun because I was explaining to the now art director as I was telling about you know doubting for. Close Encounters, I had to drive 3,000 miles, you know, looking for. I said, Today, you guys just Google it, right? <laughs> Give me a good mountain, you know? And I said, But we didn't Google. We didn't have CGI. We had to build all this stuff. In Close Encounters, we have Melinda Dillon and Richard Dreyfus climbing up these rocks before they get to the big arena. Well, they would do it in green screen today. I built a seven story rock on rollers. Uh, we put in front of the 125-foot
0: front projection screen. I mean, it was like totally different. It's incredible. It's a, well, Devil's Tower, I mean, it's basically one of the stars of the movie. I mean, you got Dreyfus building it. You got all the the people impacted by the the aliens drawing it. And so it's like, it's that visual yeah. that carries right through to the end.
1: And you know what, Jeff, this is the thing. You could plan things so well in films, but sometimes you just luck out. I think Carl Gottlieb had seen it when I was, uh, we used to go to Verna Fields. Uh, She became a vice president. She had an office and then she had a spare office that nobody used. So we'd go there and hang out. And I was there with maps and Carl would come and hang out. Carl said, well, you you know, oh yeah, this, oh, he said, go and look at Devil's Tower. I was like, that's pretty interesting. You know, we have like a family of people. And Verna was the older lady, uh, Mother Cutter, they used to call her. It was different today I couldn't imagine being an art director and not drawing. You don't have to be the best artist, but even to convey your
0: thoughts. I think there's something special about the old school way of doing this before all the computers and everything like that, that just makes it more real, more special. There's just, I think that's why these movies still connect. you ever think like, oh, if you made that movie today and like you just CGI'd the shark, if it would even have been as good? They
1: have done CGI sharks and they're really, really good. When CGI came out, and I use this illustration, if you took a Western, you had the cavalry come up and with there a there half a dozen men or a dozen men, and then the Indians would appear on top of the
0: hill and there'd be maybe a hundred. Today, they'd put 300 thousand or whatever it was definitely magic to all the movies that you did and and the special touch that you brought to them so let's talk about the book joe alves designing jaws
1: it's about the making of jaws and it has it has all the storyboards you know what was interesting jeff is like for an example i didn't throw anything away and when dennis started to work on this book he realized I kept everything and I put it in a footlocker and I haven't moved for 50 years. So there's a, like this little notepad. I had that notepad. That is describing my scouting for Edgartown, for from Martha's Vineyard, page by page. So he put that in. And then I said, why, do, why are you putting this in? And this, this is a whole script on. That's how we used to break down scripts. You know, we didn't do it on computer. We did page by page. Or maybe I did a little sketch if I th- thought I was going to You go through the book.
0: Joe's book is Joe Alves Designing Jaws. It's a gorgeous coffee table book. I bought it and I just went through it. It shows how Joe not only designed Jaws, the shark, but also Amity Island, Quint Shack, the orca, you know, everything, every little visual element that we know as Jaws the movie in a whole. This book designing jaws pulls it all together in such a beautiful way
1: something else too if uh, i have storyboards i don't really push it but a lot of my stuff is on sale online and it's on uh, joe movieart.com
0: i'll put a link to it on amazon in the show notes and i'll put your website in the show notes so people can check out your storyboards joe i can't thank you enough for spending all this time with me you know hearing these stories about these movies It was such a strong part of my childhood directly from you. It's been really, really incredible for me.
1: Really nice talking to you, actually. It's very pleasant.
0: Thank you. (laughs) You're very pleasant, too. This was a lot of fun. Thanks, Joe. All right. How great was that? How many amazing stories did Joe Alves have? So many. Ah, I enjoyed that conversation so much. If you love Jaws as much as I do, definitely check out the book Joe Alves Designing Jaws. It's an amazing, amazing book. I assume right now you're like, book, we're all in the mood to go watch Jaws and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I don't blame you. I don't blame you. The good news is we're almost at the end of the episode, so you can go do that. That's right. Episode 59 is coming to a close. Can you believe it? I can't. But here we are. But you all know what that means. We do, Jeff. We do. That's right, it's time for a trending hashtag from the family of Hashtag Roundup Games on Twitter. Follow Hashtag Roundup at Hashtag Roundup on Twitter. Download the free Hashtag Roundup app on the Apple Store or Google Play Store. Play along, and one day one of your tweets may show up on an episode of Live from Detroit, The Jeff Tuoskin Show. Fame and fortune await you. This week's Inspired hashtag is hashtag shark songs and bands brought to you by Toonsist Tags, a weekly game on the hashtag roundup. Are you ready? This is the ultimate shark mashup with any song and any band. That's how you play. And here are some hilarious examples of hashtag shark songs and bands. Jaws the two of us. We can make it if we try, (laughs) Jaws the two of us, you and I, into the great white open. (laughs) I shouldn't pick a song tag, because I cannot sing, but try to enjoy it. Everybody's talking about the shock dress man. Finn Young Cannibals, great band. Foot Bruce, everyone cut Foot Bruce. That Thing You Chew, the Tom Hanks classic, of course. Anything by M.C. Hammerhead. You Gotta Bite. But you're right. to party. All right. These are some great hashtag shark songs and bands mashups. I got to tell you. Shark Dress Man. Yeah, great song by ZZ Top. Sledge Hammerhead. Peter Gabriel Classic. The Talking Hammerheads. Sharky Shark and the Funky Bunch. The Dorsals. Amazing band. You make me feel like a natural woman. Woman. Great White Wedding? Dive or Great White Wed- wa- right. Uh, Mr. Sandshark, bring me a dream. Make him the cutest, but please leave my spleen. <laughs> it's the Eye of the Tiger Shark, the thrill of the fight. If I had a hammerhead shark, I'd hammer in the morning. Those are some great ones. And finally, let's wrap it up with I fought the jaws and the Jaws won. All right. Those are some amazing hashtag shark songs and bands. If you love the hashtags, go to hashtag roundup on Twitter or in the app store. Get the app. Play along. One day one of your tweets might show up. As always, these tweeters are retweeted at Jeff Dewaskin show. That's my show home on Twitter. Go retweet them. Show them some love. They'll also be linked in the show notes. All right. Well, that was fun. Can't believe we're at the end of another episode. I want to thank my guest, Joe Al's for joining me. I want to thank all of you for coming back week after week. It means the world to me. And I'll see you next week. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Jeff Dwoskin Show with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. Now go repeat everything you've heard and sound like a genius. Catch us online at the thejeffdwoskinshow.com or follow us on Twitter at Jeff Dwoskin Show. And we'll see you next time.